Well, welcome, everyone. We're so glad to have you with us. We're so glad to have um, KI be so robust. Like, you're, I just, we're so proud of you. I just got to tell you, Latka's rule. That's right, Dr. Geyser. That's exactly right. They rule, even if they're not so necessarily great for your heart. Um, and neither are pastries, though, right? Um, and so we're so happy to have you. We're truly proud that um, that just KI just rocks and you y'all just show up and you're here and we love that and you engage and it, you just can't know. Um, we hope that what we do and what we bring feeds you. You have to know that y'all showing up feeds us. This, th- that's what we love. We went into this business because we love you and um, and that you show up really is, is what gives us energy and it's such nachis and joy. It's such a machaya, such a life-giving thing for us. So I just want to appreciate all of you for always digging in and I know um, Rabbi Sher feels the same way. Um, so we uh, decided that Howard, our team Hamantash, and that's exactly right, David Howard, um, we, we decided to do this because we really do take your feedback seriously. Um, so we take your feedback seriously. And after second day Rosh Hashanah, so many of you unsolicited, which is the way with Jews, unsolicited shared your opinions about um, this new thing we did second day Rosh Hashanah, which was instead of doing a sermon, because we didn't have, we don't have a rabbinic intern right now. Um, so rather than have a sermon by somebody else, we decided to just have a conversation about um something that had not made it into a sermon, like an idea we were interested in, but that hadn't made it into one of our sermons. Um, but we were really, when we tossed it around, we were both really interested in the topic. So we we did that. We talked um, about this idea um, that, that did not make it into our sermon. And so many of you shared with us that you loved that, that we decided, well, then why do we have to wait for the high holidays? Like, if y'all like that, and there's plenty of stuff we're thinking about that don't make it into sermons and or don't get in front of a big audience, um, that we decided, well, let's see. Let's just try it. Let's just float it, and let, let's see if we have a topic that we want to talk about, the two of us, and then just share kind of our insights into that uh, discussion and have you be a part of that. Let's see if that works. And here are already 54 screens, um, which is just fabulous. We're just so happy because w- uh, that means people and um, and more than one person on many of them. So we so it means um, that you are interested in um, this kind of a conversation, which is really exciting uh, for us. So when we were preparing for this, uh, we, you know, we each talked about kind of what are we reading? What are we looking at? What's curious to us? What's happening for us? What are we thinking about? What's going on for us? Uh, and so, um, I shared, uh, with Rabbi Share an article that, um, had been shared with me that, that it was just kind of a curiosity at first. And then it really dug into some, important, you know, issues that we often don't take very seriously or talk about as liberal Jews. So one of the things we want to do is if we're going to do these for you, we want it to feel a little edgy or sexy or, you know, and current, of course. We we also want to talk about things that we don't necessarily talk about very much as liberal Jews, like in, in terms of what we present to y'all and what you come to us to talk about um, sometimes, but sometimes actually this is the kind of stuff that people are actually wrestling with privately 
that they discuss with us privately, but that's not really in our public communal discussions. And, and just really talk about that and put it out there. And you can see how we're thinking about it because we do think about a lot of things that we don't talk about as a community necessarily. So without being any more mystifying about what right. that and, is. And one thing to point out, this is truly a conversation. Which means, unlike a presentation, we're not necessarily pulling all our punches. We're not being careful or over-the-top cordial about things. We want you to actually be in the moment in which we're engaging and wrestling and arguing. So, of course, there is in, in immense love and respect between the two of us for each of our opinions. But at the same time, that's how we build and strengthen the opinions by pushing and pushing in a very real way. So that's a long-winded way of saying that you are truly in the room right now as this conversation discussion unfolds. This is not a prepped conversation. This is a, here is the topic we really care for and ways that we can engage together. All right. So do you want to to start sure. how yes. the article goes? So the article basically from JTA, the article came out that basically said the Orthodox Union had taken a vote on whether or not impossible pork would be considered kosher. Impossible pork. Now, that is from the Impossible Meat Company, and you might know that that is a completely vegan option for people who want to have a meat-like taste. And so the first thought, of course, in the article as well was, it's vegan, question mark, and yet it goes into the question of whether or not it could be deemed kosher. So they wanted a hexer. Impossible Pork wanted a hexer to be considered kosher under Orthodox Union standards, the OU hexer that you're used to seeing on stuff. And so usually it goes, of course, by ingredients, where the ingredients sourced, could there be, it be mixed with anything that's possibly not kosher, blah, blah. Like there's a whole process by which the OU decides whether or not to give its stamp of kashrut. Um, and so all of the ingredients determined by the OU, the Orthodox Union, all of the ingredients are kosher. Every technical aspect that they could look at was a Every single except not technically necessarily morally aspects of where things are sourced, but technically under the laws of kashrut, orthodox laws of kashrut, everything is kosher. So we want to know, what do you think, because we read the article, what, what do you think, did the OU give its hexer to impossible pork or not? And we want you to think about the why you think they would or would not have when we have a poll prepared, Rebecca All right, or somebody. So everyone, take All a vote. All right, everybody vote. Oh, wow, it's like live time. It's exciting. It's very exciting. It's like election night. Oh, except election night was like so friggin' scary. The stakes are not nearly as high right that now. That is true. Can they see that too or just do we just see it? Rebecca, can that thumbs up know. if you can see the poll can numbers? Can you see right the now. poll or you no? You can't. Ooh, I no. love the okay. suspense. This is fabulous. Adam says we can see it. Well, I think that means you're on the end, Adam. I think that <laughs> means that you on the end. Okay. So, okay. So here's the result. Millie, Wex Millie Wexler is already. So we're not going to tell you what they decided before we explore this a little. Uh, Millie Wexler says, interesting because there's kosher shrimp, right? So there's a shrimp product that is not actually shellfish and it has a hexer. So what, so those of you who answered not kosher, I want you to think about why you think they would have voted that way, as well as those of you who uh, kosher, okay? 
So will Mark says because the fact that it looks like pork okay. is enough to cause doubt, as opposed to the shrimp that what doesn't look like shrimp, as opposed the to the lobster that doesn't look like lobster, the impossible burger that doesn't look like a burger. You see where we're going? It's not so clear. The concept of see this Ooh, this is gorgeous. Look at God, our people. God, look at KI. I'm so Come proud in. of our people. This is so great. Okay, seventy five percent of you said they ruled it is not kosher. Twenty five percent of you uh, voted that they did say that it was kosher. Okay, so three quarters of you suspected, right? On some level, that even though aha, look, what? Passover cake cookies pancakes. Yeah, this right? is they're having the whole conversation right they now. They already this have a beautiful. conversation. Okay, they're so ahead of us. I hate that. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, seventy-five percent of you, three quarters of you, already get it. That there's something more when we talk about what is kosher, and I'll use that term, past of course, eating. That there's something more than just what does halacha say traditionally? What does it say actually technically is the letter of the law? Impossible pork is kosher according to the letter of the law. But three quarters of you have enough Jewish awareness of how we think and approach things to know that there's another part that it seems to violate. Because three-quarters of you voted they didn't make it kosher. There would have to be a significant reason for that. And you all get it that it's not about the letter of the law. It's about something else. So what we're going to explore is what are those things, the letter of the law versus the what? The spirit of the law? The idea of the law? Any of that? Um, and then how do we decide in our own lives if we're not going to follow the letter of the law as just that's what we do? And even in this case, the OU oh, didn't Did follow only the letter of the law, but they, they, they ruled in, in, in favor of the spirit of the law, the spirit of the practice. What do we do with that? Right? So we think that the Orthodox always rule According to the, the halacha, the, the absolute letter of the law, but it's not true. This is a perfect case. So in that sense, all Jews are alike in that we have to wrestle with where does the letter of the law mean something to us? And where does the idea underneath the practice mean more to us? And that means we might do something completely different than the letter of the law. That's right. And the idea, the fact is the rabbi's first task is being protectors of the spirit of the law. And often that might be by just simply using the letter of the law, because if you follow the law, you know, you're protecting it. But in these moments, in these moments, like impossible pork, we are given a harder task. But since I saw it on the chat, I'll ask, what about Passover cookies? What about these other items that, quite frankly, and I know it might be really controversial to say it, what about the fact that that kind of violates so the spirit of the So this is one too. of the places we went when we were talking about this, about technology, because the article was about how technology bumps up against, you know, tradition and what you do with that. So in this case, technology allows for fake pork to be kosher. In my grandmother's house of blessed memory, the only discussion that meant anything on Pesach was, 
did you try Ruth Goldberg's uh, Pesadica sponge cake? How was it? Mm, a little dry. Tasted a lot like matzo meal. But the meringue cookies. But the meringue cookies, how she does that, I don't know. I would give anything to know the secret for her pesadica meringue. Like, so, like, what, what, why do the rabbis or why would we eat all of this amazing baked goods, which technology has allowed us now, the kinds of flour we can use that are you know, kosher for Pesach, have allowed us to have all of these Pesadika goodies that we all, a lot of us, grew up on. So my my grandparents, who would have only bought a Heksher, anything for their house would have had to have an OU Heksher, would not be able to eat impossible pork because it's against the spirit of the law, but they ate the most gorgeous sponge cakes and muffins and everything else for Pesach. Doesn't that equally violate kind of the spirit of the law of, um, of Pesach? So, so, so we were talking through this and it's about, so how do we make those decisions? Do I want to raise my daughter eating really delicious treats that mimic chametz on Pesach? Or do we want to have the week of Passover be a week that feels truly different and completely separated from that. Really lean into that overgrown cracker idea. Like, is that what we actually want to be doing so that the rest of the year we have that that context against it? If we go so far as to just create the cookie because we can, are we somehow reducing the potency of the holiday altogether? Right. So we come to a place of having to decide, all of us, what we commit to. Like, what is our Jewish commitment to practice? And and on what do we base that? So why don't you talk for a minute about what you eat, sure. Daniel, in your house, and what you're committed to in terms of kashrut. Sure. So in our house, we have decided that we want the kind of kashrut that if someone who keeps kosher was to come to our home, they are comfortable eating. Now, I'll grant you that that does add certain obstacles for us. For instance, we only eat meat that has a hexure on it, though that is somewhat difficult at times. And we make sure never to mix our milk and meat. We have two sets of dishes, which was fun on our wedding registry, but is not as fun in storing in our kitchen. And we make sure that we follow all the laws that will allow someone who keeps kosher to feel comfortable and willing to eat in our home. So... I don't do that, <laughs> right? I don't have anybody coming to my home, A, to eat, but B, anybody who's got a kashrut standard that's going to keep them from eating in my home because of my kashrut standard. So that has nothing to do with my decision about kashrut. My decision about kashrut is like threefold. A, it's it's a decision about what have our ancestors done, as Mordechai Kaplan would say, to positively Jewishly identify? And that was to not eat certain things. Pork, shellfish, um, mixing meat and milk. Like There were certain things they would not do, and they were willing to even die, as we know if we celebrate the Hanukkah story like and lift it up. It's probably a myth, whatever. But but the idea was Jews have been martyred for those kinds of violations of Jewish practice. They chose to die rather than be forced to violate their practice. For me, that is deserving of respect. 
and it's deserving of my attention as I sit down to eat every single time I eat. It's deserving of some attention from me about do I want to positively identify with the Jewish people by not eating pork, not eating shellfish. Um, and it was meeting, mixing meat and milk. It's no longer for me. That's a longer conversation about why not. It doesn't really matter. The point being, but I also have other ethics and values that for me are Jewish ethics and values around eating and consumption that for me makes something trafe. Like, obviously, we eat for health. People want to argue pork, shellfish was really about health. Yeah. That is not an argument that matters Jewishly because then you negate the whole point of the argument. If it's for your health, well, then you shouldn't be eating pesadica sponge cake. There's a lot of things you shouldn't be eating that are technically kosher, right? So that is not a meaningful argument for many of us. If it's about health, then throw the Torah out the window in terms of eating practices and There's let's listen to science. There. Listen There's to enough science. great diets. Okay. So if we agree it's not about health, it's about, you know, Jewish practice, Jewish values. One is just our Jews have always done this. I positively identify with Jews and my ancestors and the risks they took and what that meant for them and how difficult that was for them. Um, I identify with that every time I choose not to eat something that smells really good, by the way. Um, and, and I won't eat foie gras and I won't eat veal and, um, styrofoam should be trafe, um, forever until they change styrofoam so that it like actually doesn't damage the planet. There are the ways I bring Jewish values and my Jewish understanding of, of a commandment to take care of other creatures and the planet in a way that says to me, I will not eat that. Um, right. So but it's beyond that. Wait, wait, but it's more than that. So I, I'm, I'm fully on board. I'm fully on board with the ethical good. sides of eating. I'm fully on board with the idea of foie gras and veal being out the window, styrofoam, who needs it. But when you say something like not so much milk and meat anymore, there's more than one way to take on what has been the tradition. So when I see milk versus meat, I see milk being the thing that sustains life, the thing that allows our children to grow. And I see meat as the ultimate recognition that we hold the power of life and death in our hands as humans on this earth. And if we know those two things are such opposing and strong realities of our world, to mix them is almost too close to playing God. There's the notion of B'Tselem Elohim, but to mix those two together almost says, I don't have to take so seriously each of those. I can put them together and not worry about that. And so for you, that's the underlying call to say no. That is a major piece of it. I completely disagree with him. I completely disagree. The whole idea of not seething a kid in its mother's milk is about you're allowed to kill something and you're allowed to eat it. But Adkan, to hear, you cannot take a fetal kid and actually cook it in its mother's milk, which was a fertility ritual in the ancient Near East. Like that's, that's the line. You, that's why I don't eat veal. Mixing meat and milk is exactly why I don't eat veal. We are not going to seethe a kid in its mother's milk to eat a cheeseburger. That's not going to happen. The, the milk that made the cow, that the cow made for the cheese did, is not the hamburger that's going to be on the bun. They're not going to be put together. Does life and death get put together? Yes, because life and death are together. And they are mixed all the flipping time, including loving animals and eating dead ones. It's true. So for me, it's like, okay, you can eat meat, but you cannot torture it. And you, and if you start doing things like seething a kid in its mother's milk, 
on purpose as a delicacy or a fertility rite, you, you might compromise your humanity, you Israelites, you Jews, to a place where what else might you be willing to do? And if you take it on that same thread, I will say one of my favorite pieces of the Reconstructionist movement altogether is being willing to reconstruct why a tradition starts, honoring its, its past, its history, and keeping its relevance to today. So you can say that that is exactly where it started, where I head with it is the direction that I I take it, at least I reconstruct it in that way. But it's beyond just kashrut, right? There's other traditions, traditions that we generally... But wait, before we go there, there. so I want you all to hear, we both have very committed kashrut practices. His is about reconstructing the letter of the law. Milk, meat, don't do them together. And he reconstructs that to mean don't put life and death together, right? They're opposing and for all of the things he said. For me, it's the opposite. I won't eat certain things because I am into the spirit of the law, which is don't torture animals. So I won't eat veal. I won't eat foie gras because it tortures the animal by definition to eat it. So what we wanted to say to you is we we – both have very committed practices about kashrut that come out of completely different ways of approaching the whole conversation. And you should hold that truth when someone talks to you. I often hear, I, I, I keep kosher but light. Or I don't keep kosher but I don't eat pork and shellfish. And I think that's because there's all this baggage around the idea of do you do it to the nth degree of the letter of the law? But the reality is if you keep any form of regulated eating based on connecting spiritually – to what you believe, that's kashrut. Right. There might be different levels to it. You might have to have a little bit of nuanced conversation to make sure someone doesn't think it's the same as theirs. But to downplay that that's kashrut, that would be dismissing the spirit of the law. That's right. Because if you take the time and you make conscious choices in your eating, you are engaging in kashrut. And engaging in ritual is what all of this really comes back down to and how we do it. And so, for instance, for myself, and I've seen most of you on Shabbat, so it's not a moment that it would be seen in my office in a small bag that looks like a monkey. It's a long story. It's from a place in Jerusalem, Yad Lakashish. They made a great tefillin bag that looks like a monkey. It's cute. I'll show any of you. But I have inside it my tefillin, my tefillin that I've been wrapping since I was 16. And wrapping tefillin is even more letter of the law. You shall wrap this tefillin on you each and every day that is not Shabbat. The thing is, that's not why I wrap tefillin. I I found that it was becoming robotic and without soul, and I was putting it on with no care at all that I was doing it. And I thought if I do this, I'm going to completely reduce any value that tefillin has for me. But I am a person that constantly worries that something on the to-do list I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what did I forget to do? And so to find some way to connect to that would bring me back into my spirituality. So here's what I do. There's a, there's a custom in which you wrap the tefillin around your arm seven times, but the rule is you can't count to seven. You can use the seven dwarfs, you can use the days of the week, you can use the Aleph Bet, but you cannot count to seven. That would make it too mundane. Using numbers. Using numbers. So instead, I write seven things. Seven things I want to accomplish. Seven things I will be proud to finish in that day. Seven things that might have been looming over me the day before. And as I wrap, I say each one of them. I write it down on a post-it note. And I say each one of them. And then I have my prayers in the morning. My own personal set of prayers, ranging five to 12 minutes, nothing crazy. And when I take it off, I can feel the lines of the tefillin on my arm. 
I can feel the to-do list on my arm and I've connected them to a routine ritual that I do each day. And that gives me a different emphasis, a different push to get the things done. Now, here's the thing. If I told some other Jew that I make a to-do list to fill in set, they might even think it's... it's Heretical. Uh, yeah, that it's insane. But for me, it connected my ability to work harder and try harder and push further with the pursuit of faith. And that reconstructed that entire ritual in a way that is now incredibly relevant to me and incredibly near to me. And it's really changed the way in which I see this, uh, this ritual in action. And so that's the way he lives into the spirit of the halacha, the spirit of the practice in a way, right, that is, which is opposite in some ways from how he understands meat and milk. And so what we also want to appreciate together out loud in front of y'all is the ways that we are charmingly internally inconsistent, right? That about one situation, I might have one way to approach that practice. About, uh, you know, another ritual practice, I have another one. And and a lot of times it evolves over time. So I am going to do a quick commercial um, for the class that's coming up that you're going to see that's called, Why Do We Do That? <laughs> right? Why do we do that? Why do we lift up our fingers in front of the Havdullah candle and do all this crazy nonsense looking at our fingertips? Like you, you've checked your fingers all day, usually like, you know, for, is it chipped? Does it not? So why do we do that? So one of the reasons we want to offer that class is because we want to say, okay, so here's the reasons that it was understood traditionally. Here's what people are thinking about now. What's the way you think about this? Is it meaningful at all? Is there a way to reconstruct it? Is there a way to try it on, even if it's a little uncomfortable? Um, let's play with that. Like the minute they make tefillin, because you know, tefillin's about putting on, on the head and on the arm, the words of the Shema, right? And, and other paragraphs as well. The minute they make a silver version that goes around my head, the silver filigreed, Becky Rodman, wake up. You may have to make it for me. Um, the silver filigreed words of the Shema that goes around my head and then wraps around my arm the rest of the words, I am so in. I am in to linked fill-in. And Jackie Madoff, I can see you, and I would wear gorgeous shoes while doing it. Right, so... The minute it right, the minute it speaks to me that way as a practice, I'm in. Um, so, so this is what we wanted like to bring forward are the ways that we as liberal Jews often say, well, practice is not really so important to us, but isn't it? There's so many ways that we actually want to, and if we want to take on more practices and be comfortable with more ways of exploring our relationship to the tradition and, and our relationship to the ways our people have connected to the divine and, and, and to our better selves. Like, don't I want to explore that? Don't I want to expand my understanding of what I consume and what I don't consume? Like what, I just bought a hybrid car um, after, you know, our Lexus was totaled. And I was nervous a little bit, like, what does that mean? Oh, my God, I know it's the better thing to do, but I don't know. What is it? It's, it's like, but I want to expand my understanding of Jewish values and Jewish commitments around consumption. It starts at eating, but it's also in many ways about consumption. And so we, we think as liberal Jews that we don't have to deal with this whole thing of practice because you know, do what you want. But it's actually not true if we're living thoughtful lives. Why don't we pivot a little bit? 
Why don't okay. we pivot just a little bit with the idea of going back to that same disruption, though, that same disruption of technology, and one that many of you might think is on the more irrelevant side to you, I actually think speaks volumes to this idea of why we take care and consideration into what it is. And for that, it would be the idea of Shabbat. It'd be the idea of Shabbat and that in which we are told we are not to kindle fire and keep fire burning during Shabbat. And yet somehow that is translated today into the most, one of the more important technological advances that we've gone through, which is that of technology. And the question becomes, electricity fire? Did I, did I miss something? Because suddenly all the laws around fire were translated over to electricity. And that might seem like a very letter of the law decision to make. Well, because the question is, is it fire? Is it lighting a fire, right, to use electricity? That was the question before the rabbis, like impossible pork. Is it fire to turn on the lights in the sanctuary? And the obvious answer is no. Electricity flows the whole time. It's not fire. You're not kindling a fire. And so... You're not even turning it on or off. The light switch just cuts part of the circuit. The right? electricity is always going. It's always going. There's always fire in these walls, if you will. So you can put – my grandmother used to cook on a blicht. She would put a metal piece on the back two burners of her stove because the fire was always going so you didn't violate the laws of Shabbat to keep something cooking. That's how we got shulent, by the way, which is one of the most – amazing results of Jewish law ever is cholent. The original slow cooker. Not simis. Cholent. Because simis, ugh. Um, so cholent, you know, meat, cooking in a broth with beans and other yumminess and potatoes. Oh my God, potatoes. Cooking there hour after hour after hour on a low flame because if the flame was going the whole time, it's not lighting a fire. It was kosher for Shabbat. So electricity... Like, like Rabbi Sher just said, is, is flowing all the time. It should be like a blech. You should be able to use it. And yet? And yet, the rabbis ruled that it was lighting a fire. Why do you think that is, Rabbi Sher? Well, my frustrated, liberalized sense would say because they wanted to make it harder. They wanted to keep this feeling of Shabbat being a a full differentiation from the rest of our week. And yet it's frustrating because in homes that I've visited with uh, Shabbat practice, they've got Shabbat timers, Shabbat lamps, lights that turn on and off by themselves, electricity that seemingly is pre-programmed and then you don't do anything, but you still enjoy the lights and the use of the light. You just didn't activate it yourself, which feels... Rather loopholey. <laughs> what Jews are loopholes? What can't be? Um, right. So and yet and yet, what the rabbis were doing were saying we understand the letter of the law is that it's not fire, but what was the intention to the ancient Israelites of not tending those fires? It was that they wouldn't engage in the stuff that regular life was made of in the ancient world. You had to have a fire to cook your food. You had to have it to heat. You had to have it for many different purposes. And so the idea was we want to break from that and that you have to prepare for that break. So you keep the, the fire keeps going, but you had to cut the wood, stoke the wood, keep it from getting wet. 
you know, in my grandmother's case, you had to have a blecht. You had to have a recipe that would go on the blecht, you know, that so that you could cook it for 24, 36 hours, whatever, you know, and it would still be okay and edible. You, you had to prepare for Shabbat before Shabbat. And if Shabbat went into Chag, forget about it. If Shabbat went into a holiday, right? If Saturday night starts the holiday, forget about it. These Jewish women were screwed. Like they, they had to have something that could be on the fire for, for like three days. four days. Like, um, and so, but that was done. Then it was done. And, and all they did was, you know, was, was come to it and serve it. So the rabbis were actually serving the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law when they made electricity a fire. They took a thing that seemingly is not related because it's not and said it's too close to the real feeling. And therefore, if we ignore what electricity can do, we're going to lose Shabbat. And that's what a lot of you said about the pork. It's too close. It's just too close. So Daniel actually brought up um, something interesting that one of you brought up in the commentary about the other ways things are too close is what does it appear to be? So ma'arit ayin is the rabbinic concept of if it looks like pork and the rabbi who wears a kippah all the time, which I want him to talk about, who wears a kippah all the time is in public eating impossible pork, you know, something, then someone can look at him and say, oh, well, if the rabbi eats pork, obviously Pork's okay. it's okay. Right, so one of the concerns of the OU was, of course, ma'arit ayin, the appearance that will lead people to do something bad. The idea that the pre-endorsement, the the false assumption that something is now okay. And for sure, that is something that we need to worry about on a regular basis, not just in keeping kosher and in anything we do, if the way in which we engage with something might be misunderstood in a way we don't want, we have to take that into consideration. We have to really think about the way that's done. And by the way, that's not easy because at the same time, we're being told that things that are personally mattering to us, like my wearing a kippah, somehow now has more influence on people from the outside looking in than my own decision to put it on my head. So talk. To, I want you to talk about that a little bit. Because what would you all assume if you see this guy walking down the street in the Palisades in a grocery store with that kippah on his head? What would you assume if you were anywhere else? Right? What would you assume about him? What would you assume about his practice? What would you assume about his politics? What would you assume about his stance on Israel? I'm just going to go there. Why not? What would you assume about what he does on Shabbat? Right? And about what kind of a synagogue... He is a participant in. What would you assume if you saw him in a grocery store, on the street, anywhere else in America? Because in the Palisades, we know everybody. What would you assume? So I want you to talk about that, if if you're willing to. Sure, sure. I mean, the reality is, the reason I wear a yarmulke today... Well, for for talk about... What would they assume? What have I been asked before? I've been asked, where do you daven? Very specific <laughs> phrase, where do you daven? Not where do you pray, where is your synagogue, where do you daven? Right. I've uh, had people literally walk up and start talking about Israel without any prompt or uh, approach. Um, and I have had people, literally I was sitting at a taco shop in Westwood, fantastic place I went after high holidays one year. 
uh, named Tacos Tumadre. It's got like 80 different tacos. That's an exaggeration, probably like 35. Delicious tacos. And I was sitting there and I'd ordered, and I'd ordered two vegan tacos. And someone looks over at me and says, you can't eat here. This is not a kosher restaurant. You can't be sitting here with a yarmulke and eating this food. And I said, actually, I ordered the vegan tacos. And they said, but the establishment isn't kosher. And they started getting so upset with me. And I stopped and thought, but you're here. <laughs> you're in the restaurant you're yelling at me about here. being in the restaurant all because I decided to wear a yarmulke and they didn't. So they felt that the decision I made meant that I had to hold to a different standard. And so the reality is the reason why I wear a yarmulke is Davka is exactly the opposite of that because I don't want us to assume that when you see it, you can judge the book by its cover. I want people to know that you can wear a yarmulke and you can be proud and engaging with your faith and still go have a nice vegan taco at the non-kosher establishment. That it doesn't mean that you can dictate everything about a person or sum it all up based on the coaster I'm wearing on my head. That at the end of the day, there has to be, it has to be a part, a dynamic piece of who I am and not everything. And by the way, wearing a yarmulke all the time takes away a certain ritual from me. I've watched as Rabbi Amy has walked into a sanctuary, as you prepare to lead for a service, as Cantor Frankel prepares to lead for services and puts on that yarmulke and that yarmulke says, it is game time. It's time for me to Something do- different is about to happen. And I lose that piece by wearing my yarmulke at all times. I often don't, I have to, I, I do the patting on the head to make sure that it's still on. Because from time to time, it's almost as if I've forgotten because it's so much a part of my practice. And that was a decision. That was something I had to give up because I actually want the opposite. I want someone to talk to me about what is kosher. I want to endorse to them that their level of kashrut is kosher. And not that we want to argue, but like I'm willing to get into it a little bit if someone demands <laughs> You're that. You're willing to scrap. I wear a yarmulke says the way I have to eat. And that line in the sand, that calling of saying that the way in which we as liberal Jews decide to see the world when we choose which letters of the law to follow, that it doesn't make us any less authentic. In fact, based on this conversation, based on the way the rabbi saw the ruling, if we continuously care about the spirit of the law, we're being insanely authentic to the tradition. And the same way that he's ready to wear that kippah everywhere, which I actually see as an act of bravery, particularly in our time. Um, I remember being in Israel during the second intifada, um, and most Americans would not wear anything that identified them as Americans. You would wear something that identified you as a Canadian because you were in danger in a different way being exposed in Israel as an American. And so like that whole idea about our commitment to being proud of who we are and being out there about who we are, and he does that every day as a Jew in a way that I don't have to deal with because women not only don't wear kippah traditionally, but lots of Jewish men want to take up an issue with me when I do wear kippah, which you have to love the reasoning about that too, is why can't women wear kippah? Because women are not obligated to wear kippah. Uh, <laughs> can, can I volunteer? So if I am not obligated to wear talit or kippah, nowhere does it say I'm not allowed to wear kippah or talit. Nowhere. 
right? Nowhere does it say that. And so I remember being, I very clearly remember, because Talit is a very important practice to me, and we talked about this, about our difference of opinion about what wearing Talit means, which is great. You just have to love that. So we had a very animated discussion about that. And and I said, you know, I was at a um, a uh, convention, a reform convention, where there was huge, you know, vendors um, selling these beautiful Talitot, and so the the artist said to me, you have to try this on. This is going to be so amazing on you. Please, please. And I bought from her before. So she knew me. And she said, I, I want to show you this. I think it's perfect for you. And she was so excited. And I, I was so excited. And you all have seen me wear it. It's a purple talit with, um, with beaded, like this, beaded fringe at the bottom. So it feels like a hug every time I put it on because it's so heavy. Um, and so two men were walking by and they stood there and they watched this interaction between me and the artist and they were like disgusted. Reform Jews were disgusted. And he said, it's like a friggin' fashion show. It's about how beautiful the Talit is, how beautiful she'll be in it. It's disgusting. And then I thought to myself, first of all, it was everything I could do not to fly over the <laughs> divider and take them by the throat and whatever. Um, and so, but then I thought, okay, here's my mug that I'm drinking out of tonight. Would they make kiddush with this mug? No, they would not make kiddush with this mug. They would make kiddush out of a silver cup. They make Havdullah over a braided gorgeous candle. And their mother's candlestick, she would have died before she gave them away because her great-grandmother carried them out of Russia. The most beautiful thing they had. They gave the most beautiful stuff they had to the moments that mattered the most. The moments of holiness and goodness and connection. And you dare say, your great-grandmother was wrong? Do you silver Shabbos candlesticks because they were beautiful? Chidor mitzvah, beautifying the mitzvah. It's okay when you decide it's okay. But if I decide that talit for me is also an opportunity to beautify the mitzvah, now it's disgusting? How about the way we dress our Torah? Silver and crowns and beautiful jewelry. Make sure that we keep our Torah looking like royalty. But the beauty, we make sure it elevates. And yet, if people are used to something as their custom, those men were both short-sighted as well as only their custom had ever gotten any further. They only seen drab, boring, black and white tally tote with the exact same lines down as the 25 other ones in the shul. And they couldn't even fathom this idea is how I would like to hope. But there's also other judgments in there you too, think? without a doubt. But this idea of being so short-sighted to not realize that there's a deeper mitzvah that you're engaging with in that moment. But because is just it was a woman doing what was violating what they understood was a male norm, it already takes on a tainted status, right? And that, and it's like, but they would apply chidor mitzvah to anything else, to what they make kiddush on, to what you know, to what their chuppah would have been made up. You know, they they would have applied the same standard to Every anything day. ritual in their lives that they deemed appropriate to them. But the minute as a woman I started to encroach on what was an exclusive male practice, now it's disgusting. This idea of chidor mitzvah, beautifying the mitzvah. Now it's vanity, right? And so that's, we, we have had like many 
many exchanges preparing for tonight about like we think as liberal Jews we don't really need to address much about this, but it's it's not true, or we wouldn't be reconstructionists, right? Um, thank you, Todd Simons. Yes, very clear. I love that. Okay, blatantly, it's sexist. Um, but as liberal Jews, as reconstructionists, if we don't think we need to engage with this conversation, then why do we bother coming at all? And I feel like too often that's the case that's made both against liberal Jews and by liberal Jews. The case against liberal Jews is y'all aren't following the letter of the law anyway. So you have no part in this conversation and you're heretics and you need to not be taking our sacred things and doing what y'all do with them. That's the accusation against liberal Jews. And I feel like the, 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 the argument made by liberal Jews is what does it matter to us? We eat what we eat. We do what we do. Shabbat is not convenient for us to stop doing stuff. We have a lot to do on Shabbat. It's the only, like, are you kidding me? My kid plays this, my, we do that, we have errands. Like, Shabbat doesn't mean anything to us. We're not observant. Like, Kashrut means nothing to us. We're not observant. I don't believe in a God who hears prayer, so why would I go to synagogue? And so I feel like on both sides we get that this conversation doesn't matter, and it 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 should. It can. It I does. want it to. It but does. But it does. We say it doesn't, and yet I guarantee if we spent time, we could poke a hole with each and every person on this Zoom right now of something that if we question the way they do that thing, they have to do it. And so honestly, sometimes that becomes a very tricky and fine line yes. for us to walk as well. As rabbis, we had this conversation about Kaddish. So, right, how many people want to say Kaddish, let's say, at the graveside? It's, a, it's an unveiling. And you have five people there because you want to keep it intimate. Or it's COVID and it's intimate. And people want to say Kaddish. We don't say Kaddish without a minion. So within the liberal Jewish community, we have fierce arguments about this, believe it or not. I am somebody who does not say Kaddish without a minion. We have people who do. We have lots of, of liberal clergy who say, who say Kaddish is meaningful and people want to say Kaddish. And so if they're at the graveside and there's only five people, you should say Kaddish with them. Why would you take that away from them? And this is where I'm with the spirit of the law and not the letter. I mean, no, where I'm. Letter of the law and the not the me- spirit. Right. The, well, but, but because, the, well, I don't know, actually. Look, it's tough. I'm stumped. It's tough because the reality is. I don't want to say no to someone. I don't want to say no to someone who's in pain of losing their loved one, who's using Kaddish to shape that experience. I don't want to say no. And also, knowing the letter of the law, saying Kaddish with 10 people is the guarantee that we never quit on community. Right. Even in the moment where we want to crawl into a hole and say, forget it, we say, but you can't because you have to say Kaddish. And so maybe for me, that's where the letter of the law meets the spirit of the law and hasn't changed for me in thousands of years. But it's hard. It's really hard, people, to say no to people who want to say Kaddish. And I feel like the point of Kaddish, if we let go the need to gather together when we're hurting, when we're scared, when we're sick, when we're afraid, when we're whatever, if we give up requiring people to be in community to do some of the rituals around that, then then how are we different from just like individualistic America? Go for it. Go buy 
Go be by yourself and say Kaddish. No one cares. That is not Jewish. This is not a solo flight. This is a, this is a group experience. And you have to have at least nine other people around you to say, we stand with you at this really difficult moment. No exceptions for COVID, Barbara Stefan. Well, no. no exceptions to the number. but No but, exceptions to the but number. This, but we have we're said with, we're with Zoom people. counts. We make a way to make it work. Right. We've we said just can't. Zoom counts and is it a mitzvah to say Kaddish? Yes. The mitzvah is you got to get with a minion to say Kaddish. Yes. And so six feet apart in masks. Yes. Zoom counts. Yes. Okay. But wait, now we're on to Kaddish, but I, 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 I'm stuck. I hear it. I, I, I endorse it. I struggle with it and it hurts to tell someone they can't. Yes. Well, we don't but say my, you can't. We say we can't lead that prayer in this moment. There are other prayers we can replace with. But what about Shiva? What about the part in which oh, we yeah, say, we talked about okay, this. what about Shiva? Shiva, Sheva, seven, very simple. Very but clear. you know what ends up happening? I feel like I'm in a negotiation every time I talk to someone whose family member passed away. Rabbi, what about four? Can you do four? Is four okay? I've actually only got three nights that would work. And listen, I'm not being condescending about it. I understand there's a hundred different difficulties that can happen with it. And there's a reason for it. Shiva, in my opinion, was there for a reason. It was for a reason to say to yourself, you don't have to move forward right now. For the week, pause, be numb, stop overthinking, don't change anything, don't fulfill any of the needs, don't get anything done, just open your home and let people surround you and make sure that you don't try to move forward yet. It is okay. It is a holy thing to be numb at the beginning, to let it be processed. And what I said to Daniel was, it doesn't work anymore. And that breaks my heart. It doesn't work. And it's breaking all of our hearts who sit with people who are grieving. But the reality is, for instance, my father of blessed memory died in Florida. I had to fly from Duluth to Florida to be with him, um, to take care of him at the end. He died. His apartment had to be closed up. I didn't know anybody in friggin' Florida who was going to come bring me brisket and a casserole. I'm going to sit for seven days after I've been sitting by this man's bedside for how long? And then we had to bury him, and it was Pesach, by the way. Go do funeral food during Pesach, by the way. With no sponge cake. With no sponge cake. And then, then, right, then I have to pack it all up and get out of there. There was... I didn't need seven days to sit on the floor in Boca Raton, Florida. It didn't work. My people weren't there. What I needed was to get back to Duluth and have 150 people show up at my house for a night of Shiva long after a week had passed. And now people are often sitting, waiting for people to fly in, and they've been waiting for the funeral for four and five days. So now you're going to ask them to sit Shiva for seven days? It just, it isn't working anymore, and we don't know what's next. We've not reconstructed Jewish practice around death, which while it When it happened and when we invented it and when we responded to death that way, it was gorgeous and important and hard and amazing. And it doesn't work anymore. And we're not having the conversation enough, I don't think, as rabbis, and I will own this. You can disagree with me, of course. 
But I think as rabbis, we're not having an aggressive enough conversation about how do we reconstruct practices and observances around death that are actually meaningful for people and not just pushing Shiva as seven days after the burial as being the place to focus. And I don't know, maybe that's starting Shiva before burial. Maybe that's making sure that it's seven days after loss. I I don't know. And I don't know the right answer, but I'll tell you these questions, while seemingly easy to say, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, they shockingly can really break your heart in trying to figure it out because you don't, I, I don't, I've seen Shiva work. And when you see that it can work, and then you realize that it doesn't fit into everyone's world. But, but it, it, I think there's a difference between knowing that it works and then living in a reality where it doesn't anymore for most people. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we can be sad and we can have real nostalgia. And I mean this in the, in the sense of respect. I don't mean nostalgia as a great memory. I mean the work of the Russian author, I forget her name, that talks about nostalgia as serious religious practice. That nostalgia is why we sit down at Seder and eat slavery, and eat our history. Uh, Nostalgia can be a really important religious guiding principle. So we can have nostalgia and feel sad that it's not working anymore, but I think that's a statement about modern life. And our obligation as Jewish leaders is to help people rethink what that means right now. What was the intent of Shiva? What did it benefit people? What did it give people? How can we maximize what Shiva gave in a world where Shiva really doesn't work anymore. And we're lazy. We are lazy about it, I think, as rabbis. We are behind the curve. We are way behind. We are still pushing Shiva. And I'm not saying Shiva wasn't a good idea. What I'm saying is it doesn't function anymore. And we are almost at time. So he's going to hate me for this. But the place I wanted to go with some of this was to say, okay, we can say, well, we have these feelings, those feelings. The, the one that I see coming up more and more and more is a place where, Shiv, like Shiva, it's really hurting people, is circumcision. And now that we're out of time, let's throw that one in. But I'll be honest, I talked to a conversion student this morning who's really, really deeply, painfully wrestling with the notion that if she has a son, she doesn't know if she would circumcise. It's a really important place this is bumping up against our values for many, many folks, not just converts, many Jews are really struggling with what it means. The letter of the law and the spirit of the law, neither of them work for so many um, people who are holding a a perfect newborn and saying, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. So, um, so we, we often as liberal Jews think this isn't, isn't a a relevant, meaningful, you know, um, conversation. And we're not trying to say that we want to make it so for you. What we want to say is um, if we're engaged at all as Jews, we need to engage because too often we cede the floor, we cede ground to folks who, you know, want to say they get to control it on the one hand. On the other hand, we also seed control to our very easy, luxurious, individualistic um, American lives where our Jewish call 
to obligation, both to do things and refrain from doing things, does not weigh nearly heavily enough to make us better people, to make us a better society, to make us a better city, a better community, a better person. And these, these, this whole conversation through thousands of years has been about the mitzvot are supposed to help make us better. We can argue whether this one does or this one doesn't. But the conversation was, how do I live into being a better person? And as liberal Jews, I feel like too often we just say, eh, I don't really have to deal with that. And by the way, we also assume through that that it's the more observant community that are the ones that end up losing letter of the law to that spirit. And if we were in this room, which I hope, God willing, one day we can have all of you sitting in the room for these conversations, I want to remind you that it's not just two people talking. It's not just the observant community that ends up pushing against the the spirit of the law versus letter. It's happened in the liberal communities too. It's happened through history. The bar and bat mitzvah, we tried to move it. The rabbi said, 13, not working, not an adult. Let's adjust. They also said, Kol Nidre, makes no sense. It works against us. The anti-Semites use it to say you can't trust a Jew because they break their promises on Kol Nidre. So the rabbi said, get rid of Kol Nidre. It's gone. It makes no sense. And the Jews said. And the Jews said, hell to the no. The letter of the law there, Kol Nidre, matters. The bar and bat mitzvah. No, it was the spirit of the law that mattered with Kol Nidre. They didn't care what it actually meant. They just wanted to do it. They wanted. They didn't to do want it. to lose it's the how mechanics they connected of to it. doing it. And what it meant to them that those that incantation that they heard coming out of the mouth of the gorgeous cantor's voice that that moved them in a way that nothing else would. And they didn't care that they don't relate to the words because they didn't understand Aramaic anyway. And that conundrum. That's what makes this tradition exciting. No. That in one moment is protecting one side of the law and the next moment is protecting the other. It is seemingly completely ridiculous and obscure with no logic, rhyme, or reason as to which one, but that's what hits our heart. That's when that minhag, that tradition, overcomes our understanding of law and it becomes, we don't care. We're not changing it. And that is dynamic and interesting and kind of scary all at the same time. And it makes this tradition worth fighting and arguing and struggling over. But I want to remind you, it's not just in that one direction. It goes in both directions. It is a truly engaging experience to go through. So we want to thank you all for showing up and being here. Uh, we know how hard it is to pay attention on Zoom. Y'all are amazing. Look at you. You're all like leaning in. I love that. Except Sammy's sitting back a little bit going, I'm not sure about this whole thing. Um, but we love seeing you. And and I want to say a shout out to Judith Ubik, who gave me such a beautiful piece of jewelry with a schma on it that um, it is a piece of religious practice for me. And, and the ways that we can redo that and as artists and beautiful people who appreciate that can can share new ways into that. So we look so forward to hearing your ideas and ways to um, have these kinds of conversations. We want your ideas. Put them in the chat. Put them in the chat. Don't go anywhere yet. Oh, my God. They they just rush. So uh, don't go anywhere. Put some ideas into the chat about what you want to hear us talk about. What's a topic you'd like to hear us address? And Rebecca's going to put them all. Thank you, Rebecca, as always. Tattoos, someone said. Um, Someone said, do it again. Great. We'd love to. So what do you want to hear about? You can always, tattoos, conversion, you can always send it to Rebecca, but if you can put it in the chat now, she's going to put it on a Google Doc, and we will 
we'll chew on some of them we and will. see what, what feels like it's generating a lot of energy for us because we feel like that's what keeps you engaged is that um, <laughs> we have some energy around something, and I hope which you can these all, days is hard. And I hope you all can feel it and know this this is a pleasure to be able it's to wrestle a with a topic, to think deeper, to not have to just worry about the next meeting, but to really worry about the next meaningful experience in these conversations. I'm so glad we could share that with all of you. I'm so glad you all showed up for it and we will definitely find a way to do this again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We love you, KI. All right, everyone. Have a good night. You guys good send night. it all into the chat. We are going to get going, and we will see you next time.